Could Planet of the Apes and Smoking the Bandit in fact take place in the same universe? There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. www.sequelcast.com Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. I am your host, Uncle Milkshake. This is a podcast where every episode we review a movie and a franchise, one film at a time. This time around, we're nearing the end of our uh, long series of episodes focusing on the Planet of the Apes films, and we'll be covering the fifth film in the franchise, five out of six, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, directed by J. Lee Thompson, produced by Arthur P. Jacobs, and written by Paul Din. John Corrington and Joyce Hooper Corrington, based on the loosely based on the uh, original novel by Pierre Boulet. This is uh, blah, 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 blah. and with me is uh, Thrasher. Howdy. And special guest McDonald. Mandibus. Oh man, special guest Mandibus. Mandibus. Yes. Now, how how do you like managing all those guns in Ape City, Mandibus? Uh, it's, it's, it's an okay job. I mean, uh, I know there's the gorillas and they want the guns and everything, but, uh, you just gotta, you gotta make it clear to them. They have to fill up the paperwork. Now, you see, if this were a lesser show, if we had asked an ape, you know, how they like handling guns, they would turn to the camera and go, Ooh, it's a living. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's no Brooks-type joke right there. Yep, yep. That's a Flintstones-type joke yeah, right there. Oh, it. oh, the... I'm glad you can laugh. You know, I'm I'm in mourning because we are now at the end of the original Ape series, and and, and sort of in in more mourning uh, to show my uh, solidarity with with Ape kind. I am enjoying a delicious banana and peanut milkshake, and I am wearing my gorilla costume. And I just finished a shot of uh, whiskey, Buffalo something whiskey. I don't know. There's buffaloes oh, see, on the bottle. Like Schnapps, banana flavored schnapps. You said that'd be good right now. Oh, we, we should have just we should have toasted uh, with grape juice plus. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, if if anybody's listening to this, every time we say ape, take a shot of grape juice plus. Yes, you can buy you can buy it in the box for, for our comments. Eh. Oh right, you know? yeah. The website is uh, sequelcast.com. Send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com. Check out the Twitter feed at twitter.com slash sequelcast, or you can review us on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search sequelcast. will be the first thing that pops up. Now that I think about it, that, like, that grape juice plus or whatever, that should have been, like, I'm betting it had to have been a sweet wine because I think she would have been able to tell the difference between grape juice and spoiled grape juice, which is basically... It was probably Manischewitz. Uh, well, that's a creamy wine. I don't know. That's weird. If it were, if that's a weird context, if it's a Jewish wine, used for celebrations, mm. sacramental wine. Um, wow, what a twisted turn. Yeah. Let's talk about this movie. Right. So, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, as Thrasher mentioned, is the last movie in the original five-film ape saga. But in, I, our, in our next episode, I do want to mention it'll be a massive apeathon. We'll be doing the uh, Tim Burton Planet of the Apes reimagining. 
as well as covering a little bit of the live-action and animated uh, Apes TV series. I don't think we should talk, even though we've talked about it before, I think we should talk a little bit about what news we have on the redo, the re spawn, the what do you want to call it? For the I'm going to call it a de-imagining. <laughs> a de-imagining? Okay. Uh, have you yeah. heard any more news, um, Monkey? No, what? Mandamus. Mandamus. Actually, no, I have, but I'd like to I'd like to save it till the next oh, episode. Oh, for the next one? That's fine yeah. with me. All right. Uh, so, Battle for the Planet... Wait, then why did you bring it up? No, because I want to talk about it then. It's a tease. <laughs> okay. No, no. It's if you're tease. calling it now, you're supposed to be calling about the elderly because our topic is pets. <laughs> if you want to talk about pets, you call it next week when our topic is the traffic situation downtown. I don't know why you people don't understand this. So originally, uh, the fourth film, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, was meant to be the final film. And the fourth one made just enough of a profit where they decided, well, let's do a part five, really <laughs> on the cheap. Uh, and um, you can tell, I recall this film as being unwatchable, watching it again. I don't think it's that awful. The first half in particular is uh, has some interesting things. But... Um, if you're going to watch Planet of the Apes, try watching one of the other ones first. Mm. I, I would say, what are some initial impressions? Uh, Thrasher, Mandamus? Well, I, I, will, I, I will say this. If you're going to skip over any Planet of the Apes films, perhaps it should be this one. Um, that being said, I still enjoy watching it. I like having one last chance to... to to, to experience this setting and to experience these characters. Um, you, know, you know what this film reminds me about? Because really, Planet of the Apes, the first four films, they are a wonderful body of work. And, uh, and you know, the, the fifth is okay, but certainly not nearly as good as the preceding four. So you know what it's like? It's like at the end of, of, a, of a nice long play, and then the cast all comes out, and they do one more number as an encore, maybe from a different show. And it's nice to see the cast on stage, and you know what they're doing has almost nothing to do with you know what the, the play you really liked. But it's nice seeing them back again. That's how I feel about this movie. This movie, this movie is the encore of the Planet of the Apes. I'm reminded of a scene in the 1984 movie Amadeus, where uh, as a young man, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is playing a composition for the uh, Emperor, and the Emperor pauses and says, that has a few too many notes. Battle for the Planet of the Apes is a few too many notes or a few too many apes, however you want to put it. it mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, Thrasher. It's um, a fifth film that doesn't need to be there. Well, but I appreciate, it, I appreciate it being there despite all that. Again, this... this with this movie... I almost feel it almost feels to me like a TV series. Yeah. It has almost a, a, a I guess it has even though they did a live action show. It does have a very syndicated feel. Number one because of the budget, but also because of the storyline with um, I guess Caesar versus Aldo and how they're back and uh, back and forth and Aldo's plan of course and then something happens and then we'll talk about but then, of course, I'm going after the mutants and such. Um, well, you and... know, you, you bring up a good point. This, Now that I think about it, yes, this film does kind of feel like a pilot. Because this film was 73, 
and let's take a look and see, um, okay, uh, yeah, and, uh, the TV show, live-action show, Planet of the Apes, just came out the next year, so, sure, in some ways this probably was kind of a experiment to see how low budget can you get with the apes. Hmm. Well, it did have a pretty decent return, at least according to the budgets, uh, the budget and gross revenue listed on Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia says it had a budget of about $1.7 million and returned a gross of uh, $8.85 million. So That's a good return. That's yeah. money you can take to the bank. The ape bank. Yeah, so you were mentioning the, the story. This movie starts with a very large recap of... Um, oh, God, yeah. It's like a 10-minute recap. I think without the recap, if you were just like, if you were thrown into this movie, if you were thrown into this movie without <laughs> having without having seen any of the Planet of the Apes, let's do that. Let's raise a child, give him no interaction between the other eight movies, and then sit him down and make him watch this movie, and let's see let's see what he thinks if he can actually understand what has happened because of this, uh, I guess, flashback. Yeah, Battle for the Planet of the Apes makes requires that you know all four previous films as it calls back to all four films in particular uh, the second one Beneath Planet of the Apes and I like the third one Escape from Planet of the Apes well and there's also a bit of Conquest I mean because you have to understand how Caesar's got moved position yet in Conquest you have like an exposition of maybe five five minutes of them talking about what happened before it's frankly to pad the running time to make it seem more like a a 90-minute feature-length film. Very yeah, the other films handle the exposition very elegantly. This one just throws it all at you. Speaking of stuff that it throws at you, what do you think about the uh, their sequences with an ape called the Great Lawgiver that um, bookend the film, oh, sort of like in Saving Private Ryan with the Lawgiver in that film? Um, mm. what, okay. Uh, now, we've talked about John Huston before because he was Gandalf, correct? Yeah, Gandalf and uh, The Hobbit and Return of the King animated. It's, it's so amazing. It's like, I could listen to him narrate this entire movie. I wish I wish a lot of it had been narration. I just want to spread his words on an English muffin and eat it up. Oh, God, I know, right? He's the lemon curd of a... Please tell me, like, he's he had to... I want to find any books on tape. I don't care what the books were. I just want him reading me something. I want him to read me to sleep each night. No, he is a marvelous, marvelous... Uh, as the lawgiver, I know he, he is marvelous. He just has that authoritative voice. It is like it is like Moses or some other great prophet is addressing you when he speaks as, as the lawgiver. Now, am I wrong in assuming... That something, something seemed off. Was the part of the lawgiver shot even before this movie was going to be. I have a hunch it was added at the last minute, which is why it's a framing device. I have a hunch they're like, you know, we, 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 we need to make the movie longer. We need to make this movie make sense. We need to m- more firmly establish it and connect it with the rest of the series. Whip in John Houston as the lawgiver. I also think that, you know, it, a big thing of these lawgiver sequences is there are human and ape children listening to what the ape giver has to say uh-huh, and these shows- films were popular with adults to be sure but also among children so little kids can walk in this movie and go hey I'm a little kid like this little kid in the movie oh he's next to a little baby ape let's listen to I like being told stories 
you know. I don't, I don't doubt an Uncle Milkshake. But then here, but then that also kind of sets a precedent that perhaps the future has changed. Yes, we, we've addressed this before about how how the apes, you know, did the did Cornelius, uh, Zira, and Milo traveling back in time, did it create a causality loop, or did it in some way change the course of future history? And you see so many humans interacting with, with apes, especially with the lawgiver, having that scene where the lawgiver preaches to both human and ape. It, it does beg the question, has history changed? Has history now, because of their interference, allowed for a world where the lawgiver could preach to human and ape? Or had the lawgiver always preached to human and apes, but when the ape achieved dominance, you know, abused that position and cast you know, humans out of their records? Mm, and exactly. It's like supposed to take place like over 600 years after this movie as well. And they say, yeah, that yeah, they're able to coexist, but yet we have seen, we have seen in other movies that they eventually humanity goes back to being primitive or something, or some at some point they fall. And even well, you know, you know what occurs to me, you know what suddenly occurs to me, you know, I don't recall an adult ever being present in any of the lawgiver scenes. Am, am I correct in this memory? Yes. It 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 now it it occurs to me. And this, you know, this goes back to the lawgiver being a prophet and being, you know, a, a messianic figure. What if, what if the children are the only people that will listen to the lawgiver? What if the lawgiver is giving the last speech the children will hear before clubbing them to death? Well, no. that, that's that's what I'm thinking. Is he talking to the children of the lowest members of that society, aka the children of the human slaves and the children of the poorest apes? Oh my god! And it's only later generations that realize the value of its of his teachings, but by then it's far too late, and humanity's been driven into barbarism. Well, I don't want to give up too much, but it says here, Paul Den has stated that the last shot of the film with Caesar's statue, the tear on the statue of Caesar, is to let the audience know that Caesar's plan for like the coexistence of the species ultimately fails I, I guess I guess we ought to say that um, near the lawgiver there is a there is a statue that's been erected a statue of Caesar the ape the ape that you know the, the ape that led the ape revolution in uh, conquest and, and, and is sort of the founder of the, the new order the, the apes are forging and the final shot of the, the final shot of the film you know a, a a human child asks the lawgiver you know who knows what the future will hold and the lawgiver responds perhaps, only the dead. And then, you know, the music starts to swell and it pans over and we see that statue of Caesar and the statue begins to weep blood. In It's a very beautiful image. You know, some may call it over-the-top histrionic, but it is a very beautiful image. But yes, it does imply that the works of Caesar in the end will be meaningless. Ape civilization will stagnate, mankind will fall back into barbarism, and the world will be destroyed by a nuclear weapon worshipped by a race of telepathic mutants. Yeah. So, so after this lengthy prologue that is almost like a quarter of the length of the film, you're like, I don't know, that might be exaggerating a bit, but it's fairly long. You should have timed it. It's at least ten minutes long, I know that much. Um, out of a 90-minute picture. You get <laughs> yeah. into um, what takes place a, a big, a long time after what happened in Conquest of the Planet of the enough. Apes. Galaxy. On the uh, Wookiee planet of Kashyyyk. No, I mean the uh, ape village. 
you see the apes and the humans kind of coexisting, but the humans are certainly subservient, but they are not speechless. Indeed, there is a human that is a teacher. You have Caesar, the main ape from the last film, with his uh, wife Lisa, who was also in the, the last and film. And McDonald, who was at one point, he was the he was one of the higher ups working with the the governor in the governor's office. Oh, that's right. Very good. I mean, he he was kind of he is the one who I guess makes the connection with Caesar, and he's kind of also to blame for this, isn't he? Mm. If you think about it. Because they didn't kill Caesar like they wanted to to prevent this future, McDonald helped him to get out of there to survive, basically, the electrocution, and and then this happens. Well, well that's not the only thing. It's not just the Ape Revolution. Apparently, the nu- a nuclear war has taken place as well. Ah, uh, yes. Which I, I sort of blame... On the ape revolution, and also then at their, I, I think in their minds, they, being the seventies, were still stuck in the idea that Russia and all the other countries that had nukes would set theirs off at some point. So, I don't so, think... so you're thinking that that the ape revolution, you know, that that, that you know, in in the ape revolution, might have been like the moment of weakness that these nuclear predators were waiting for, and they decided to exactly. strike. Exactly. Well, I don't I'm... think it was a atomic. I don't think it was a bomb set against us by our own people, like a decisive strike against one part of the of the country by our own government, um, in order to root the the ape revolution. If it was just subject to one place, where is it actually? You know, I I just thought of it. Where does the actual conquest happen? Is it in Cali? It's gotta be. It's gotta be New York, because we. It, this all has to go back to Manhattan for the Statue of Liberty. Well, that is true. Unless, of course, I mean, of course, it's entirely possible that during the nuclear war, perhaps Caesar did lead his people and some humans through the radioactive wasteland and brought them to what was left of, of the New York area. And also, most gorillas in all these movies have a thick New York accent. You know what? He's got a point. He does have a point. Hey, we want some guns here! Hey. Yeah. Hey, Although you know what, I've got a that's something I've got to say. You mentioned you mentioned apes with New York accents. Uh, I've heard explanations of of you know of that around, I've heard roughly twelve years are supposed to have passed between yeah. the events of conquest and the events of battle. That's it. Um, that that's those are those are estimates I've I've heard. Um. I've I've also heard I've heard a handful of I heard a handful of fans claim five. I've also heard a handful of clams of clams a handful of planet of the clams. Clam has a tasty you. Uh, I've also heard a, some Planet of the Apes fans claim that you know sometimes as many as twenty years may have passed. Regardless, you know in in conquest we only have two apes that can speak. We have Caesar. And then we have, you know, his his girlfriend Lisa, who can only say no, at least at that point. So let's assume twelve, fifteen years is is roughly. We'll just say that's it. That's a that's a hell of a short time period for all apes to gain mastery of speech, to break <laughs> from their conditioning, and to create a race of subterranean mutants. You know, if you're watching a, a set of films about apes that can talk and 
subjugate humans. I think you can have to walk in with a bit of suspension of disbelief. No, no, I do. But but this, oddly enough, of all the Planet of the Apes films, this is the film that really stretches credibility. A whole lot seems to have happened to the apes and to the humans and to the young mutant race so much that it in so little time it just seems very very improbable whereas the other films dealt with much longer time scales you know thousands if not millions of years have passed you know between 20th century earth and the time of uh the planet of the apes and we're, we're it's just you know if, if i i just i just cannot bring myself to accept that 12 years is enough time to make all apes fluent in, in English and to create a fully functioning uh, race of uh, mutants. Hey, hey, Thrasher, can we can we just blame it on radiation? Yes, but then we're falling into that 1950s radiation where it's, where it's practically another word for magic. And, and I'll admit, you know, Planet of the Apes Planet of the Apes has been a cerebral series it's it's never been about the hard science. It's been about the social commentary and those dynamics. But there's, I guess, in this particular film, there's too much fiction in the science and not enough science in the fiction. The film has too many characters in general. I think is sort of a big um, problem with it, and not a lot of plot to to carry it through. I agree. That's but, another way. It's like a pilot. Sure. And there's Caesar and uh, Lisa, but we also want to mention, as in the other movies, you have the chimpanzees like Caesar, you have the gorillas, the more militaristic in this case, led by a general named Aldo, played by Claude Akins, and you have the orangutans that are the scientists and smart, and in this one there's like Virgil and uh, Mandemus. So, um, and all, it's worth mentioning, Caesar has a son named Cornelius in this movie. He doesn't conceive the sun, but the sun is a, a little chimpanzee child. What do you think about some of these uh, new characters? Um, I, I really would like to see Little House on the Prairie eh. with apes. And I do like the addition of Cornelius. I mean, he is kind of a plot device um, as the I guess I'm gonna give it away as the murdered son, as the reason for um, a Caesar lot of getting the... pissed off again. Yeah, Caesar getting back to his rage, and then taking it out on Aldo. Um, what happens is is uh, the son Cornelius he's playing with his uh, pet squirrel or something. We're trying to catch a squirrel. Trying to catch a squirrel. Yeah, there's a squirrel. Um, he's trying to catch a squirrel. And he overhears Aldo, who is really plotting against, um, is plotting against Caesar, and Aldo kills him by hacking at the branch that the, the kid's on. The kid falls and dies. And he does this to put Caesar in a state of mourning to distract him so Aldo can rise up and kind of temporarily take control over the apes. Yes. And, but, uh, but of course, that that all happens later. Right, in the that film. happens later in the film. Uh, I mean, for, first we have Cornelius, you know, on an expedition to a ruined, bombed-out city. The idea being, you know, if he can if he can find uh, audio tape, video or audio tapes of his parents, 
he'll have a record showing showing him details of the future, allowing him to better function as a leader and guide his people. And I think that's a pretty compelling hook for the beginning of the story. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, they're sort of the, the sins of the fathers and what happens to the sons and trying to <laughs> see with a family he's never had. And it's also just, it really takes advantage of the fact that time travel has been involved in this story. Right. Because... But of course, in exploring the city, that's how uh, they they come into contact with the with the the mutants uh, living underneath the city, who really aren't all that mutated. They're just sort of they're just sort of old people with radiation burns. They're either fat or Asian, and um... yeah, but they're not like the mutants in the third movie, which or in well, the not second. Yet. Well, they haven't got to that point. Yeah. yeah. But of course, you do have the sets up. You have the setup for the cult of Mendez, who is cult's, I guess, right hand man. Right hand mutant. Oh, God, yeah. Some mutants do have two right hands. And one of the... um, No mental powers yet, either. One of the apes they take with them is a uh, orangutan named uh, Virgil. Played by Paul Williams. Who was Little Enos in the Smokey and the Bandit trilogy. If you want to hear us talk about those films, go to sequelcast.com and look up those episodes or just look them up on iTunes. Now, yeah. here's a question. Did little Enos, after the ape revolution, disguise himself as an ape in order to survive? Could could Planet of the Apes and Smoking the Bandit, in fact, take place in the same universe? Well, you know, at one point they were considering making a Smoky and the Bandit 4, which took place in outer space. So No! Yes, it was under consideration. There was their script made, and they got it approved by uh, whatever that uh, director was that had the rights to the series. Yeah. He approved it. Um, Hal Needham? Yeah, Hal Needham, that's right. Probably because he needed the money. Right. I mean, this was like maybe 10 right years now. ago they were throwing around that idea for a sci-fi Smokey and the Bandit, but it never got off the ground. Uh, Good. <laughs> well, what the how, What the heck would that would be? We challenge you to take Coors Light to the moon and back. And what they well, have... No, the will, idea would be no, thousands should do the older, for should a bit. Um, he should do the... Uh, he should do the... Uh, not the Cannonball Run. The... Uh, no, he should do the, um... Oh, fuck. Oh, God, what the hell's the run that uh, Han Solo went on? The Kessel Run. The Kessel Run. Oh, Jesus. I did that trying to guess it, so I sound smarter. Oh, he should go on the Kessel Run. Yeah. With Captain Chaos! Played by Paul... Uh, no, no, played by, um... Tom DeLuise. Yes. And Jackie Chan is there, too. I, okay, I guess this speaks to the quality of, of Battle for the Planet of the Apes that we're now talking about smoking the bandit. Do you want to hear a good Jackie Chan story? I think it might yes. be more entertaining than Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Okay, so I, Is it going to beat my masturbation chair story from the uh, last episode? Uh, it'll be a close second to the masturbation chair. Okay. So uh, this is a, a story that Jackie Chan tells in his autobiography, which I can't recall what that's called, but it's a pretty... It's a funny it's read... Well, it's written in broken English, which is crazy. But um, are you sure it wasn't translated into broken English? I, I think you know it had another writer besides Jackie Chan. Um, regardless, the ghost writer and the ghost writer basically wrote down exactly what Jackie Chan said. I think pretty much, yeah. And it does add to the flavor of the book. So Jackie Chan, you know, Rumble to the Bronx was a film that Jackie Chan it is his big oh, break as, as his as a more recent breakthrough in the 90s in the US but before that he was in the US in the 80s 
after being in uh, before being in the first Cannonball Run film, he was in a film called Battle Creek Brawl, which I haven't seen. But um, anyway, it was filmed in the U.S. It was directed by the same director that did Enter the Dragon, but oh. it, it was not that successful. And after that, Jackie Chan went back uh, to China to do more movies there. Regardless, while he was in America, his uh, agent and producer friends in China told him that he needs to eat all his meals at the hotel, and when they ask what he wants to eat, he needs to say, cheeseburger, fries, coke. Well, he does that, he comes in to the U.S. in the evening and orders cheeseburger, fries, coke, and gets that for dinner. So he sleeps, he doesn't really like the food, it's greasy, not that many vegetables. He wakes up the next morning in the hotel, goes down to get something to eat, but there's a problem, it's breakfast, not dinner. So the waitress is like, oh, what are you going to have? And he says, cheeseburger, fry, coke. And she says, I'm sorry, we don't have that, that's breakfast. So Jackie Chan has to go to a payphone, call China long distance, to find out that for breakfast you need to say, pancake, coffee. To order food. Interesting. Hilarious. I missed it. What were you talking about? Well, if I can make a recommendation, uh, if if it's any meal time and you're in Italy, just say vino. Ah. The Universal it'll, Food Group. Grape juice. It'll plus. get you some grape juice plus. <laughs> um, so back for Battle of the Planet of the Apes, we were mentioning Virgil. And yeah. Virgil is one of the characters I really enjoy in this movie. He has kind of a sense of a humor. He is a nerd. He represents the viewing audience <laughs> of these Planet of the Apes films. By this point, yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Because he was really... Again, I like his voice. I like his point of view in the movie. Um, he is a little bit more of a carefree. Because I guess, I guess he didn't really suffer the degradation and stuff that Caesar did. Well, he could have been a young ape during the revolution, and he might have kind of grown up in a world where he was free to learn and indulge his mind. And again, the question that, again, the the whole thing about being, knowing your history, and but being a participant in history, where you have the people from um, West Germany who were told that it was their fault, World War II was their fault, and that they should they should follow their own conscience rather than listen to a leader as fanatical as someone like Hitler was. And that they should hold themselves accountable to their to their selves. Whereas the East Germans were told, oh, no, it was all Hitler's fault. You guys had nothing to do with it. And that's why there was such a rise of um, fascist or neo-Nazism in the East rather than the West. Because they didn't feel responsible they felt absolutely no connection to World War II. So here's the question. Is Virgil, does he have no connection to the actual war, even though he's now in charge of weapons and such and keeping them in the right hands or out of the wrong hands? I think that's a good guess. I mean, like you said, he seems pretty carefree. He doesn't seem plagued by uh, a heavy conscience like Caesar seems. Caesar, you know, is very deliberate about all his his moves. Virgil kind of likes funny jokes he makes to himself. Caesar at the time was a teenager who basically, who basically drove this entire revolution, and brought his people out of out of servitude. Well, you know, I think that might kind of speak to why Virgil is is almost inexplicably in charge of the weapons. 
either he's in charge of the weapons because he's just you know gifted with the technical know-how needed to maintain uh, these these examples of machinery, or Caesar's put him in charge as sort of like a wise, almost King Solomon type move of leadership. I will the person I will put in charge of the weapon will be the person least inclined to ever want to use those weapons. Yes, I love that kind of... Oh, I love those kind of decisions. Oh, God, yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, I will I'll make sure the person who wants to use them will never get them, and the person who is least want for them will always have them. And speaking of which, before the uh, Cornelius, Virgil, and... What's his name? The McDonald go to investigate... This, the Forbidden City! The Forbidden City, Forbidden Zone area. Um, they have to, they go and get weapons from Mandemus, and he only gives them one gun, even though it's three people. Because he's like, well, what are you going to run across besides an animal you might have to shoot and kill for a meal? You don't each need a weapon. However, when they run across this, uh, this compound, this ancient library, or no, it's an ancient government building, right? Yeah where these archival records are located, they bump into the mutants, which we mentioned. They bump into the mutants? They don't really bump well, into no, them. No, they're, they're trespassing. And, um, and they're under the, the command of Governor Culp, who in the last movie was the interrogator, who's to blame for um, uh, Armando's death, who uh, was the friend of uh, Caesar back when he was Milo. But, um... Governor Culp is in charge. What happened to the past governor who technically was spared? Oh, he probably retired in shame. There was a nuclear war, and I mean, also the apes were in such a state of fervor, even though uh, Caesar gave an impassioned speech to of humility and not to kill all the humans. There must have been some rogue gorillas. Let's not kill all the humans. Yeah, maybe they assassinated some people. No, he could have made it. He could have just never made it home. You're absolutely right. And then, and then, of course, yeah, you have um, the subordinate uh, Mendez, played by Paul Stevens, um, and he wants to let the he wants to let Caesar go. He's like, they haven't done anything wrong. They should be allowed to go in peace. And yet, Culp declares war because Culp's a dick. Well, Culp. And he was a, he was a dick in the last movie, so it's okay. Yeah, well, I mean, all the mutants have been amassing this uh, bunch of weapons and vehicles, and I think they're just looking for an excuse to use it. Oh, yeah. So, but, um... You know, I, I kind of wish they would have shown new footage or new pieces of dialogue when they ran across the ancient archives of uh, Cornelius and Zira talking. Well, you had Roddy McDowell in the movie, you could have recorded some. Exactly, but instead it's just audio clips set to still images, like an old picture book that you see <sighs> yeah. on the screen. Again, you could say, oh, it's the damage. But you're absolutely right, that was incredibly lazy. There's uh, there's no artistic... I can't, I can't imagine the artistic uh, value of that or the choice, really. I really can't understand the choice. Even by the they could have showed a lot of, of f- actual full-on footage from Escape from the Planet of the Apes, if only because many times, you know, Cornelius and Zero were in situations where there would have been cameras filming them. Yep. So there you have a reason why you're watching a movie within a movie. 
Now, what if Cornelius would have left a message saying, you really need to be more uh, vicious, my son, and kill these humans. Kill the well, humans, kill the gorillas. That? There's well, always no good. Just like Jor-El. Again, how, but how would you do that in archival videos made before he knew his wife was pregnant? If I have a son, or if any ape gains the ability to speak and comprehend, here is a message. No, okay, you're right. You called me on that, Thrasher. That's a, but, I mean, regardless, it could have been some, done something much more interesting. The concept yeah, that concept of, is bananas. Yes. The concept uh, of finding... Uh, it's ape shit, if you will. Uh, the concept of finding what your dead parents have said in some ancient document is potentially fascinating. But they yeah. do nothing with it, and you're treated to an extended battle sequence in these um, in this former government I, building. I want to talk about the battle sequence. You know what it reminds me of? Have you guys seen any of Deadliest Warrior on G4? Regrettably, yes. You mean Ninja Warrior? No? No, 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 no. Oh. A, a Deadliest Warrior. No. It is a show where they pit, they like do tests to see how much damage um, a certain faction's sword would have been versus another yep. faction's um, gun type. But basically, this this end sequence it reminds me a lot of when they at the end of the show they will take the two factions like the newest one out. Well, the newest one that I've seen because this is going to come out whenever um, was the SS Waffen versus the Viet Cong. And at the end of the show, they have an actual fight. Now, my favorite one, and again, I absolutely love this one, is the IRA versus the Taliban. Oh. IRA wins. IRA beautifully wins. And that's the best fight. Damn right, that's my people. Do they do the reenactment with actors or just computer yeah, graphics? Well, it's, it's, it's not a reenactment because it's battles <laughs> that never possibly happens. Hey, what happened if the Boston militia from the Revolutionary War fought the Mongol hordes of Genghis Khan. It's all battles that could never happen. So they're not doing reenactments. You can't reenact something that never happened and can never happen without without the, the, the meddling monk from Doctor Who getting involved. Um, it's it's not a, re, a reenactment or a recreation. It's just a creation of a, of a narrative they've created about these two people fighting. Speaking of monkeys, uh, Genghis Khan had a cousin named Monkey Khan. And was his son Donkey Kong? No, but that's that's true. There is a Monkey Kong. It might not be pronounced that way, but it is now. But the funny thing is, yeah, it, it seemed like that kind of fight where you had people getting pushed off of stairs after you saw a plume of smoke. Um, I kept waiting to see like the little, little uh, figures on the bottom of the screen disappearing every time a mutant was killed or every time an ape was shot down. Now um, the. The two apes and the human, the good guys, they just had one gun. Or <laughs> yes. they found they found guns there at the complex. Because yeah, again, the the mutants have stockpiles of guns. But they're, they're fighting against mutants that also had guns. Yes. So how is it like your show? Just that it's a it's a mismatch. Apes are better no, at guns than people. I'm just saying the special effects and the actual acting and the actual fight sequences don't look extremely real. Um. I wish they had done... I wish they could have... <sighs> when they're not that exciting, it's not like uh, at the end of Conquest you have a big sort of battle scene. Yeah. Even though it's on concrete grounds in this sort of quasi-futuristic city, you still have interesting blocking, apes leaping from 
the tops of buildings and nets and all this cool stuff, but... Yeah, I wish well, the mutants had been falling on the ceiling. Take advantage of the environment. Right, yeah, they don't take advantage of the environment. It's it's an okay sequence, but it, it gives the uh, mutants an excuse to advance on the ape city. In one of the most hilarious uh, sequences of the film, some of the mutants are in a... Um, have a... What is it, a mortar? No, is that what it's called? Describe it to me. It, it's a big gun on the ground, and you shoot something out of it, and it lands and causes an explosion. It's not quite... Yeah, small. mortar. That sounds like a mortar. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah so they, they use a mortar just to take out two individual apes in the distance. Oh, you're like, there! Boom! Yeah. And it's, uh, That's a precise weapon. It's a bit overkill. It's a waste of ammunition. Maybe they want to make a statement. Like, guess what? Apes explosions are coming. You better prepare. But why would you want to do course, that? They kill the only, course, the only witnesses to that explosion are in the explosion. <laughs> <laughs> so they can't go. They can't go running back. Like the only way that's a warning is if their flaming skulls happen to fall <laughs> in the city. I think they've had these weapons for so long they're just itching for an excuse to use them. Yeah, I will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got the weapons. You got apes. You might as well fire them at the apes. We sense. don't have. I mean, these people could have been part of, could have at one point been part of the nation's defense. You know that they were all ready for a war, and then the war they got was a nuclear war, one they couldn't possibly fight. But they're still in that fighting mode. Oh God! You see, that's another thing. Like, I feel if you have the weapons, you should be using them. Which is why I think getting rid of our nukes, like dismantling them, I think that's a waste. Uh, in the film or in real life? No, in real life. I don't think no. we should be dismantling them. I think we should be detonating them. I think no matter how many nukes, if you say dismantle all nukes, there will always be one that will not be dismantled. Or of course. Or might, you know, turn. keep the plans on how to make a new one. I... Uh, but even after a nuclear holocaust, if there are people around to build them, will they really have... Uh, if, you, if you kill all the scientists, will you have people will be able to do science? Well, no, just, just use the ones that were never blown up in the war. Yeah. Which is where there's this, some... this is a weird tangent we've gone on. Yeah, if you if you just really want to do a nuclear holocaust, you take a nuclear bomb and fill it with Nazis. So when it explodes, <laughs> the Nazis jump <laughs> 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 <Pump> out. Jump <laughs> out, propelled by nuclear explosions. If, oh. if you disagree with anything that uh, Manimus or Uncle Milkshake are saying, just remember they don't they don't speak for me. You have to say that every episode. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes, um, I do. Because I'm, I'm not even sure where you guys stand. This is like... No, this is, sometimes no, the three of us sound like, like a single rambling mental patient. Here's the thing. Is, their bomb came from a stockpile way before the war. It was one of the ones that didn't get thrown up into the air by all the people bombarding each other. because of the war. Presumably, yes. That's all I was getting to. The question is whether did they make it or did they just find it? Because that bomb winds up staying there for a long time because it's then worshipped by the cult of Mendez. I, I can only assume that that they, that they... Well, you know you know what it is? You know how sometimes... You know how at one point, uh, and this was very true in the 70s, there were those trucks capable of carrying and launching a nuclear missile? Mm. There, that missile could have been on one of those trucks, and they it was never fired, and so they brought it into the city. 
Very true. I would like to see the entrance they did that on then. So the yeah, uh, yeah, where do we go from here? Right. So the film is called <laughs> Battle for the Planet of the Apes because the mutants go to the ape city, and there is a battle, but the planet doesn't exactly seem in, at stake. It's like battle for the city of the apes. Uh, well, I mean, one could argue it's a battle to preserve the timeline that will lead to the planet of the apes. Uh, but, but of course, that always brings the, the tension. If, if the future's already happened and cannot be changed, is there really any tension in the battle beyond seeing whether or not the characters we care about will get screwed over? Because we already know what's going to happen to the future of the planet. Because we have the lawgiver at the beginning. Oh, but before we go further, um, what do you think of the main uh, gorilla bad guy, Aldo? Aldo? I think his mask is really dumb. Yeah, yeah pretty it's a bad. poor quality mask. It's, it's a oh. one-piece mask. It's not even like it's not even as good as like in the first three movies. It just it it sits wrong on his face. The only thing is his eyes. <sighs> He doesn't really have the expression that we've seen in the other characters. Um, even, um, who is it? Even, uh... Milo? No, 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 I'm trying to, the, who play, uh... Zayas? Nat- Natalie Trudy, the, the Lisa. Lisa. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't remember her ape name. Um, Natalie Trudy playing Lisa doesn't have the same expression doesn't have the same ability of doing expression as uh, we saw in um, help me out again uh, for if, uh, no regular uh, planet of the battle uh, planet of the apes um, zero zero thank you Lisa is nowhere near what I believe zero zero was so amazing and the actress who, who portrayed her was wonderful sure and I'm, it, it even seems a Caesar's mask doesn't seem to have quite as much movement either although yeah it's, again it's it's Robbie McDowell and he has such ex- he has such ability to be so expressive in that makeup especially after doing it after so many movies what the heck and I mean the director of this film uh, Battle for Planet of the Apes was the same director as Conquest for the Planet of the Apes but I again they, they have, have so little money to deal with um a little time too. That's a big sure. names. But but speaking though, speaking of makeup, I, I've been I I've been dying to point this out. Um, Se- Severin Darden, who plays who plays Culp, doesn't Culp look like uh, doesn't Culp look like Ron Perlman with the slightest bit of makeup? No, not quite. That no, mangled. no. I think he has a much more rounder head. And and again, I was watching something called uh, uh, Fall of the Mutants or Mutant War or something. Mut- Chronicles of the Mutants. Mutant Chronicles. Mutant Chronicles. There you Based go. Based on the role playing game. And and his head is so cylindrical and so rectangular. When I look at Culp, I don't it, see it. it. It can't be both cylindrical and rectangular. Yes, I think it can. I would like to see your math on that. Well, okay, if you think about a cylinder, a cylinder in two dimensions is a rectangle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Ron Perlman has a face which exists between the corners and curves of a conventional face. Yes. <laughs> I, I am not an animal. <laughs> he does not live in a sewer. <laughs> uh, Ron Perlman would have been a good ape in one of these films, I think, but... 
He would have made he would have made a great general. Oh my god, him as as uh, as Aldo. I think Aldo uh, is okay. I mean, he has that sort of like. It's an alright. He's kind, he's kind of like a, an aggressive idiot, like all the gorillas tend to be in these films. Well, yeah. Well, he's a real throwback to the gorilla general from uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Right. I mean, right. that's the one of the films this one makes the most uh, callbacks to. The actual yeah. battle for the Planet of the Apes commences. I feel it's a better battle than what we saw, sort of in the uh, in the catacombs, in the in the ruins of that building that the apes were in before, because you have a, a bigger scale. Although a lot of chaos with charging apes. Ah, there's something I really like about. Again, I like seeing gorillas on horseback for some reason. I like I I like watching any kind of. Animal riding a horse. An animal riding another animal, really. Uh, well, no, not even. I don't like other animals riding other animals. Like a chimp on an elephant, nah. But but uh, a chimpanzee on a, on a, a horse, especially when they have the full proportions of a of a human, um, is really interesting to me. Even after all these films that I've seen, every time I see someone, uh, one of the actors on horseback, it's it's such a it's it really is a jolt. I don't know. I think it's the same way that Taylor feels when he first sees it in the movie. Uh, there is a certain level of amazement. Hmm. So you mentioned kind of in the, is it in the middle of this battle or is it afterwards where um, Aldo sort of takes control of the government? And well, it's while them? it's while the mutants are attacking each city. And Caesar kind of Caesar kind of loses ground, and then he ends. Well, he's his, sad because his, his son is dead or dying, so he. But then they they kind of do a counterattack. I guess I guess Caesar gets back his his drive, maybe because he fears. Not just for not only is he depressed about his son. But he's also, I don't know how to say this, he fears for ape society, which he has taken on leadership of. So does he see them all as his children, or does he Does he feel, I guess, the weight? On well, well, he really does in this film sort of struggle with the burdens of leadership, because, of course, that, that, that is, the, that is the, the, the real key to having a, to, to, a success, to, to a revolution that matters. You know, once your revolution is over... You've got to get right back to doing the business of society. And he has to deal with that. And there's a lot of Aldo running around trying to stir up uh, no sympathy for the humans whatsoever, saying they all should be rounded up and killed, or rounded up and at least, you know, put in this uh, pen, which they are for a short time. And cut up their brains! <laughs> but then, of course, it is brought up that Aldo is responsible for the the Cornelius the child the the adopted son or whatever and Virgil uh, reveals this because he was watching yeah which is like why didn't he say that before well why you know, Virgil now? gets off on watching young chimpanzees die no he doesn't okay I yeah again that is that is a question that arises in my mind is why does he wait till now. Is it because it's kind of brought up that... <sighs> because he needs to reveal that to get Caesar to give a damn and do something instead of mope in his house. Mm. But then at the same time, 
that also causes all the apes to go against Alda because one of the laws is ape must never kill ape. And uh, damn it, Butters! Sorry. I kind of wish that um, the I kind of wish that um, the gorillas would have gotten so angry they would have formed a mob and killed Aldo. Yes. That and it Aldo. looks like it was leading towards that, but instead you get kind of a neat ironic scene where Caesar and Aldo face off on the very tree branch. Yeah, because again they're monkeys, but apes don't really climb trees like that. Well, gorillas don't. Chimpanzees would. Chimpanzees, yeah, absolutely. Um, gorillas are more uh, lowland. Uh, they're more ground dwellers. Um, but they can swing. Uh, but that, yeah, that, that kind of... I wish that it had been a mob. I wish they had... I, I, I wish they had done it like they had done the governor in the, uh, in the cut scene from the movie. If they had taken revenge for somebody who was breaking law, because then again... What is punishment in the society? What do they jail? Do they kill? I mean, how are things? Well, I mean, how... that's the struggle that Caesar has to live with. You know, building, building up, you know, building that kind of functioning society, and not using the model of the old society, which was torn down by the ape revolution and the nuclear war. It does you know give you some disadvantages? He he's in a position where he has to make it up as he goes along. You know, and I, I think the Ape Village, uh, from the set design point of view, looks actually okay. It doesn't look awful. It gives a little sense of place. It's not to the level of the sort of adobe huts and so forth in the uh, original Planet of the Apes that, film. For me, that society kind of made sense, and I do like adobe huts. But also, um, with these houses... Yeah, there's much more like using actual materials like straw and stuff, which is much more like how the American uh, and Europeans, I guess, did it, like thatch work. Whereas the Adobians and other things are much closer to the Native Americans and the uh, uh, South American and uh, Central American peoples. Which again leads me to think that they took their set design stuff from that because they were filming in California. Well, actually, something about the face-off between Caesar and Aldo that's always bothered me since the first time I saw this film. Zella has that rant. It's like, every Caesar needs a Judas. No, every Caesar needs a Brutus. Not every, every Jesus needs a Judas. It's just this, this mixed metaphor that always jumps into my ear and, and starts punching. Wait, wait, what is, I don't remember that line. Yeah, it's in there. Every Caesar needs a Judas? Every every Caesar needs a Judas. Maybe he's trying to say Brutus, and the mask is changing what it sounds like. I, I suppose, but, I mean, they're professional actors who have learned how to enunciate through these masks. I, I, I think it's... And, of course, it could have been one way he could have misquoted, and they didn't have the time to do additional takes. Or they didn't have Bibles. It's also worth mentioning there's... <laughs> There's uh, two different versions of this film, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, out there. The most recent one available on DVD is the extended version, which is uh, ten minutes longer. Um, The original theatrical cut is what's available on the original DVD release, which is uh, quite some time ago, and the VHS release, I think, might have been the theatrical cut as well. See what I've got? I've got the one with the ten minutes of additional footage. Uh, Me too, that's the one. Add anything. 
it seems Wikipedia has an extended list of what's in the extended cut. It appears to be uh, more longer battle footage and a bit at the end about um, so there's a, a neat little coda to the movie with the mutants involving the nuclear bomb that I think is pretty neat how it ties back to the second film. The Alpha Omega Bomb. Which the mutants worship, but they're, um... Because they they find out that the other mutant, a lot of the mutants have died in this attack on Ape City, and they're going to launch the nuclear missile, but Mendez says, wait. Mendez is made governor after Cole. And perhaps he is a merciful governor. Well, you know, that's that's something that... that, That's actually something, you know, because... You know, Mendez, I suppose, in a way, becomes the mutant equivalent of the lawgiver. He becomes the, the figure that shaped, shaped their society and that gave them the codes by which they live and taught them how to uh, taught them how to to uh, you know worship the bomb. And and this you know this brings up something. You know, did did he just have good intentions and and just accidentally became a messianic figure, or do you think you know you know seeing you know maybe being able to 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 envision what could happen hundreds if not thousands of years in the future purposefully might have created the religion specifically to create a religion that would worship this bomb and never use it again that's a clever thought it sounds like he's kind of making it up as he goes along but you know taking advantage of there, there it doesn't seem to be that many mutants so if you can appear as some kind of a religious figure, people might put more stock in him than if he's just, oh, another governor or general. Mm. Any last thoughts on Battle for the Planet of the Apes? I, I think I've said about about all I, I care to say about it. It's, it's, a, it's a fitting encore to the Planet of the Apes series, but it's not at all necessary to the Planet of the Apes series. That being said... It's nice to see Roddy McDowell again, and John Houston as the lawgiver is an absolute treat. Oh, yeah, that's just wonderful. If you can find the clip online, just play the clip. Yeah, the lawgiver, I agree. I, uh... his, again, his voice. Yeah. Uh, we should get him on to do a, uh, one of these casts. He's dead. It doesn't matter the movie. What? John Houston is dead. Oh, wait, no, we'll that? just... You know, we'll just you know edit edit clips of him together. It's like uh, so uh, so uh, you know, I how long do you think it'll how how long do you think you want to record to us? No passing hour. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, uh, have you have you heard of our fans? Only the dead. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just work with those clips. Yes. Just those two. I mean, John Houston died in 87. His daughter is Angelica Houston. Yes, that is true. And surprisingly, Angelica Houston is... Um, awesome. 59 years old. I, she looks much older. Oop. Your chest plate does not agree with that statement. <laughs> no, I don't, because I think she's beautiful. Um, and Have you I've... seen her in uh, the Dorjeeling Limited? Yes. Ugh. I, well, <laughs> well, you, you do realize she's not playing, you know, romantic, like, 
she she's not playing like the leading lady young romantic interest characters anymore. You do yeah. you do realize that she's she, she's she not play? playing characters to be fawned over by men in the audience. Again, I thought she was amazing in Royal Tenenbaums. I thought she was beautiful in the Royal Tenenbaums. I thought she was really wicked looking in uh, Choke, which you should both see. I, I did see Choke. Um... You did see Choke. Oh, isn't that a brilliant movie? It's fun. And then, and then also, I think I will always remember her for an amazing uh, Morticia. Yeah, Zach's come on. family. Oh, yes. I mean, come That's on true. now. That's true. Oh, she was involved, romantically involved with Jack Nicholson for quite a time. Yep. Which, ah, I mean, ah, oof. Here's a yeah. trivia question. What do Jack Nicholson and Richard Pryor have in common? Oh, dear. They both they used mean, cocaine oh. as a sexual stimulant directly on their penis. I'm not making that up. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, are you... I can imagine Jack Nicholson doing that. Wait, are you sure about Richard Dreyfus? Richard Pryor. Oh, Richard Pryor. <laughs> I'm Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> now get my Jimmy in the cocaine uh, and get ready to ride wow. by President Johnson. I totally heard that wrong. <laughs> wow. I told you I didn't wear to wear the mask! Sequ- I'm tripping balls! Sequel cast, the only place where you can hear Richard Dreyfus, cocaine, and cock in the same sentence. Woo! <laughs> uh, so, next episode on the sequel cast, uh, well, be sure to visit our website, sequelcast.com, send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com, and review us on iTunes. If you just look in the iTunes <laughs> store and search for sequel cast, we'll pop right up. Uh, Next episode, like, like, like Jack Nicholson's cock. <laughs> now, while, while Richard Dreyfuss never had cocaine on his penis, um, that you know of, Jack Nicholson <laughs> did, and sometimes there would be remnants of the cocaine in Richard Dreyfuss's asshole. Oh, Thank Jesus. you, ladies, and good night. No, uh, oh, would you just want a promo <laughs> next episode? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I wonder wow. if the apes ever had uh, bananas dipped in cocaine on the tip. Because they loathe bananas. Yes. <laughs> uh, Uncle Milkshake yeah, okay. uh, is experiencing a you're driving me bananas. You're next, driving me bananas. Next episode, we're going to uh, round out this uh, Planet of the Apes cycle with an ape extravaganza, starting oh. with uh, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes reimagining from the early 2000s, and we'll cover a bit of the live-action Planet of the Apes show and the animated show Return to Planet of the Apes. The animated show Return to Planet of the Apes, you can watch the whole thing for free on uh, Hulu, or it might also be up on YouTube if you look around. I like how oh, you try with a little bit of, like, a, I guess, a Mexican twang to it. It's very Spanish when you say... Hulu. Hulu. I like a Hulu taco, please. Hulu. Hulu. <laughs> Hulu. I'm Richard Dreyfus. <laughs>